You're listening to No Librarians Allowed. We are happy to have Victoria Wong join us today. Hello. Hi, Victoria. So <laughs> you are a resident librarian at the University of Alberta Libraries, is that correct? Yes, I most definitely am. Well, thanks for joining us today. Why don't we begin by chatting about some of the projects you've done in your residency? Is it a one-year or two-year? Um, so it's a one-year contract. So I've been there since July of last year. So a lot of the stuff that I've been doing has been geared towards mostly instruction, also reference consultation sessions, and my responsibilities are kind of split between the business library as well as the science library over at U Alberta. I've been working on a resident project that's focusing specifically on interlibrary loans and user experience, both from the side of the users themselves as well as the staff side of things too. So. Yeah. Great. I am very interested in interlibrary loans. This sounds like a weird thing to say for the sort of technology <laughs> podcast, but I was kind of thinking about, like, it, it seems that in the public library, there has been an increase in interlibrary loans, like not in the interlibrary loans, but like, yes, in, in people use. in the use of interlibrary Absolutely. loans. And part of me wonders if this is due to like, just the ease of a system like WorldCat and being able to just kind of like search this giant database just like you would with your local library and be like, beep, boop, boop, I'm going to put these things on hold because that's the noise that happens when you put things on hold. Is it just because it's the technology makes it easier? I don't have to like fill out a weird form and hope that it's there and like I can see what is and what isn't. Is it because libraries are, I mean, I'm thinking again in the public library context, but like we are maybe more ruthless with our weeding and and collecting in the first collection place. parameters and what we're interested in getting in the first place so like losing the long tail looking for, more for sure things. yeah it's interesting for sure i i definitely think about the long tail or the generic mm -hmm. the, the more generalization of the collection and some of those they're not even that niche, but some of the more obscure or specialized topics just not being collected. So we know our users definitely love interlibrary loan, and I'm sure U of A is a major lender. Yeah, um, it's interesting that you should mention the whole niche aspect of things because of the fact that so many of our users tend to be the researchers who end up needing so many of the very specialized materials that we don't really have in our general collection, for sure. Um, it might be also pretty interesting, too, because the fact that um, because I'm mostly focusing on this project, which is mostly over in academic and scholarly materials focused more so than public user base, right? What's interesting, too, is that I actually met recently with uh, one of the EPL interns this year, oh, yeah. Lindsay, and she had asked me a couple of questions about the project, too. Mm. Um, there's a couple of things about that aspect, too, because I know that sh her project's mostly focusing over on um, collection development, per se, not so much on interlibrary loans, mm -hmm. but what she was telling me was that there's a lot also to do with the education of users, too, being aware as to how they should go and approach their searches and whether they're just kind of bypassing a bunch of different steps in order oh. to just go straight into ordering those things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's what I heard. So Talking about educating users, what do we mm -hmm. mean by that? Well, yeah. yeah, some of the recommendations I was kind of coming up with for that report was to go and provide more education for our user base to understand how you would do approach searching for material and what like how to actually educate our users as to what exactly is interlibrary loans. Because there's a lot of confusion between interlibrary loans and the NEOS catalog mm, right, searches. Right. 
Right, so sharing people. among a group that's kind of pooling together exactly. versus the consortium versus across actually, yeah. North America, really, yeah. right? So yeah. that's definitely something in terms of like educating in that regard. But then there's also a bunch of other things too that could potentially be um, taken consideration in the future, like um, providing more information about what the different fields of interlibrary loan form are and what they're about and mm-hmm. how to actually find and supply specific bibliographic information to go and help for the searches and stuff like that too so i'm already going off on a weird like imagine (laughs) tangent imagine (laughs) if there was actually no user education that was needed because there was actually just like one i was like smart ass computer system (laughs) of course (laughs) that would take the search of the user and do that level of like filtering for them so you know like they don't actually have to be like can't have to start here and then I have to move over here and then I have to remember to like go look in this place. And then if none of those options work, then I will do this. And I have to remember which ones are coming in from the system and blah, blah, blah. It's funny you should mention that. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's a lot of research right now that's currently going into building knowledge bases Ooh. to go and help with interlibrary loan bibliographic information. Um, I know that currently there's also a couple of systems right now down in the States where they've started to develop more of like a device-to-device system for interlibrary loans. So that would mean instead of relying over on a very large software that's kind of isolated over on the one computer or anything, mm-hmm. it's more kind of built over on the idea of it being a cloud-based system. So you have that mobility built in, as well as combining it with a very extensive knowledge base to go and find those bibliographic information. So Ooh. what users could probably end up doing is searching for like a specific title that they might be looking for and then just selecting based on that knowledge base. Problem, of course, is that it's hard to build a knowledge base if there isn't like a set record of that specific item, though. And there's still a lot of research going on into the integration aspect of mm-hmm. that stuff uh, because of how labor intensive. It's also very time consuming in terms of how much you have to go and be mindful of the different variations of like a record could be. And the fact that not all catalogs um, are centralized in any way, there is a bit of an issue in that regard too, because of the variation between different catalogs and whatnot. I mean, WorldCat kind of solves the issue in most regards, but then there's also like very, very niche specialized topics that might not exactly be solved through WorldCat too. So. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the interlibrary loan was one yes. major element of the, it was, the residency? Um, if you kind of think of it in percentage, it's about like 30%. Okay. Yeah. So I think in our discussions before the podcast, yeah. or I guess that made this happen, we also talked about your business library uh, placement or yeah. collaboration. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about the business library thing um, is that my official title in the residency program is the entrepreneurial librarian. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So the idea with this is to kind of, A, support a specific course that kind of fosters entrepreneurship for students over at the campus, Mm -hmm. as well as kind of try and provide support for specific groups over on campus for that kind of area of innovation. It's a kind of, uh, from my understanding, it's starting to become a very uh, large trend over in universities. For sure. Yeah, for fostering that kind of innovation, fostering that kind of entrepreneurship spirit. And there have been, um, there was a report recently released, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but 
um, there was a a report about what specific initiatives for entrepreneurships have librarians kind of started doing over at academic universities. So on top of supporting that specific class and offering support over for um, eHub over at UAlberta, I also ended up developing like this uh, subject guide. Right. Um, Of resources. Yes. Of resources, specifically not geared towards the academic and research focus resources. So a lot of the resources over in a university subject guide tends to be more so towards like research-based scholarly materials. Here's what we have. Exactly. That kind of thing. Um, And more on like the research of a specific subject area. The resources I ended up building over, not building, but placing over in the uh, subject guide for this one is more open to the public to be able to use. So a lot of them are resources that anyone outside the university can actually have access to. And it's not specifically over for reserved for like research on entrepreneurship. It's more so research that you can then use for your own entrepreneurial ventures and ideas. Of course. Yeah. Mm. Cause uh, so my intersection with that is through startup Edmonton yeah. uh, being a member and running a group, but you're right. There, there is no librarian there. They could easily benefit from an information specialist like us. Mm-hmm. And also many in- education institutions are beginning to have their own incubators, right? Pretty much everyone has an incubator mm-hmm. and yet there's a lot of ground covering. There's a lot of market research, understanding your niche and contribution to the business world, if you will, Mm. that goes into a a startup, whether it's a product or service. So there's a lot of, I think, benefit for the larger community, not just, you know, just U of A student entrepreneurs or Nate student. Yeah. Like I'm sure there's actually quite an opportunity for a collaboration across institutions. Well, that's, that's the main thing with the whole entrepreneurship aspect of things. I think there is a much more validity in terms of not just developing resources and focusing over on collection development, but you can end up providing so many different services that could branch out to, as you said, the wider community outside the university sphere. And I think from what I understand from the report that I read back in July last year, it was more so a lot of librarians just discussing the whole collection development for that specific topic area, like the Mm how-tos on how to build those reports, the how-tos on um, finding specific resources, market research, consumer behavior research, and so on. And I think there's a lot more that the library could potentially provide in terms of like providing access to software or to specialized partnerships that could potentially stem from libraries as well. As I do realize that a lot of the whole aspect of librarianship is resource gathering. I think for entrepreneurship and specifically, you kind of need to go and start developing a bit more like an entrepreneurial mindset to be able to better serve that population over at a university or even at the local community too. So what does that look like? For me, it would kind of be a combination of both providing opportunities like partnerships with the university business departments for that kind of stuff. Um, Also for local community groups, not so much focusing over only on resource provision, but also like, again, access to like software, uh, marketing software, especially because the fact that there's so many things, especially for an entrepreneurial 
venture, you would want to go and be able to develop those kinds of skills while you're still a student. Because then once you leave that, then you would might have things like Tech Edmonton or like Startup Edmonton was the other group, I think. Yeah. The one that they provide, it's uh, that one, I believe that one's very similar to another group I'm very familiar with over back in Ontario called UnLondon, yep. where they're basically providing um, the local community, members of the local community to go and actually have access to like Adobe, Photoshop, Creative Cloud, that kind of stuff that you don't normally get to access because of how expensive that those softwares can be mm-hmm. for users. And there's also other opportunities like building upon the whole makerspace technology, implementing that as part of the entrepreneurship endeavor could potentially be something too. I was going to say, I mean, if we're talking technology like like Creative Suite or Creative Cloud or, yeah. you know, different marketing softwares, I mean, it's the same as what's going into makerspace. It's yeah. just kind of a different mindset. spin on it, right? Like, yes. And so when you talk about the entrepreneurial mindset, do you think about that as being similar to like the maker mindset? I definitely agree with that for sure. The whole makerspace movement it lends itself very easily to be part of the whole entrepreneurship movement that's currently being very prominent over in a lot of universities nowadays too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also kind of part of the logic behind why I was stationed both over at business as well as at science too, because we have access to uh, 3D printers and not to mention elements of like makerspace technology over there. So that could be potentially used in combination with business Mm. as a background too. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like public libraries and thinking about business and entrepreneurship. And I mean, a a focus a lot of the time is probably on like job seekers and not necessarily support or incubating businesses in the lingo of the day. Like, and so what, what might that look like if we were to rethink that model? Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, like there's so many things right now that's currently happening outside of the libraries in that regard, where I know there's a lot of workshops being held from the business department on how to start your business, how to transition from a researcher to being an entrepreneur. Um, How would you go about looking for market research over in your specific industry as well? But there could be potential other things too, where it's not so much over discussing on like the day-to-day operations that a lot of people focus on. Because the fact that from my perspective, a lot of the things that I've noticed are more geared towards helping researchers transition to that mindset that I think a lot of the practical stuff could potentially be things that the library could end up helping out for because there's so much of a system already that's kind of already established in that regard outside the libraries. So and certainly with entrepreneurial librarianship in academic libraries, would you say a lot of research projects have some sort of element of technology or not necessarily? So this is where I guess where Startup Edmonton's strong or it's, it's really a criteria that yep. the work has to have some sort of technology component. It can't just use a platform mm-hmm. that already is, is established, but needs to either invent a new tech or incorporate it or have some element to technology rather than brick and mortar startups, right? Like there's lots of small businesses that are focused on the oil and gas or closed production, but they're not necessarily inventing new, new algorithms or new tools. Is this a tech startup? Are you talking about tech startup? Yeah. I mean, essentially that's right. Yeah. Okay. And, and so many of them have a technology component and what you've described also, they have uh, digital literacy skills, right? So they, they need both access to tools, Mm -hmm. but also capacity and networks to use them effectively. Mm -hmm. Right. 
there's this aspect, I think, of entrepreneurship that because the fact that it's very focused over on the service provision and more so over on brick and mortar, as you said, and that kind of style, that I feel like there is this aspect that could potentially become even more prevalent in terms of technology, like things specifically geared towards haptic technology. Okay. Um, stuff also with um, brain to computer interface development right. as well. Um, there's a lot, those kinds of entrepreneurship endeavors, I feel like they're more focused over in the medical sciences and more the computer sciences. But arguably they're very interdisciplinary. Yeah. They are very, yeah, in that regard. Um, and it's interesting in some regards too, because the fact that I noticed that technology and information literacy is very becoming blurred, the lines between the two in terms of developing mm. services in those regards. I recently came across an article on the development of brain to computer interface for library use, which was very interesting, very complicated too, because it kind of builds upon the whole idea of the augmented reality stuff that is that I, I know that you are kind of working on. Over I'm it. interested in that for sure. Yeah. So I guess using knowledge about human body to machine interface, yeah. but applying it to improving services in the library. Yeah. Um, so it could, yeah, um, it was kind of weird the way that the article was structured because of the fact that aspect of technology is so new. It's still in the development. There's mostly applications over in aiding people with disabilities yeah. in that kind of regard. But it's starting to become one of those things where things that were brought up over in Ready Player One are starting to become very prevalent now in libraries. That it's no longer a fact of um, science fiction versus right. reality. It's definitely right. becoming more of like applied, yeah. applied and a, a part of our reality now too. So now, of course. I'm sure there's a lot of literature and, and talk about the entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. And I've also read an article recently about the neoliberal university and this idea that, well, students should adopt these, you know, think of themselves as if they are startups, as if they are mm -hmm. entrepreneurs in the world, using their degree, pulling themselves by the bootstraps and going out there and creating and starting new stuff, right? Yeah. Producing goods and services. And it has certain implications for the way education is delivered, the mm -hmm. way resources, you know, yes. who, who gets to support whom, mm -hmm. which departments and programs get more attention than others, where funding goes, uh, buying software for particular projects or services and not others. Mm -hmm. Neoliberal university is very much a reality in North America nowadays, mm -hmm. right? I don't know how much uh, sort of critical reflection and, and thought on those directions and, and those choices, certainly I don't see any of that in my own kind of life and intersection with with startups and incubators. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's of interest to me. And so I think this particular article was from uh, Karen P. Nicholson. I think all of these undercurrents or ideas are actually behind these really cool, interesting programs. Mm -hmm. But they're political. They're they're not they're not neutral. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you on a lot of respects. When it comes to neoliberalism, I still kind of am struggling with the whole idea of providing services specifically because we're trying to go in and increase a particular kind of program versus supporting another group that could potentially also need that too. And it's this weird dynamic, I think, because a lot of the way that I've kind of noticed education is starting to become structured, 
the fact that you're supposed to standardize a lot of the education, you're supposed to go and have things very much focus in helping students develop a career that could, they could end up gaining something financially later on or and it's kind of the way that some universities that from my experience have started kind of operating more over on like an economical kind of financial mindset i'm pretty sure that libraries aren't immune to all that stuff either at all and it's troublesome in a way that it kind of runs against the whole idea of providing access to information as like the supposed guardians of information that we are to other people that potentially could benefit from it as well. It's a weird dynamic. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it as to why we specifically cater to like a specific group, but it's this constant trouble of like, do we want to go and continue on with this whole access for everyone mindset versus access to the people who can actually profit with it. I'm kind of wondering as to whether the whole aspect of librarianship is kind of rooted on the whole perpetuation of capitalism so much too. So it's this interesting dynamic and I think this is kind of something that I would love to go and answer once I actually get more experience working in the field for sure. But yeah, I think everyone's struggling with that. Uh, yeah. If we've learned anything from our podcast so far is that none of us have the answer. Sometimes we feel the pressure maybe because we're so earnest or mm -hmm. conscientious. We think, oh yeah, it's all on me. But no, of course, everyone is facing the same challenges mm -hmm. or issues, if you will. Not everyone, I think, feels the pressure to reconcile it. But that's why we get together and chat, right? Yeah. Is to... Put these out, th out there and think about them. Okay, let's bring it back down like 50 notches. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Can you talk a little bit about how you're thinking about librarianship rooted in capitalism? Because that's actually a very interesting idea that maybe not everybody thinks about because we have a very kind of socialist utopia view of like mm -hmm. libraries for the people, libraries for everyone, government funded institution, blah, 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 blah. So can you kind of break it down a little bit for our listeners? I don't pretend to be an expert at all over the whole dichotomy of capitalism versus socialism versus neoliberalism and that kind of stuff. But my perception of capitalism in libraries is mostly rooted on the idea that the people who are able to use the services have already pr contributed some kind of buy-in of sorts, whether it is being a citizen over in a municipality or if so, in that case, they're paying taxes and be able to get that kind of access. Or um, they're a student at an academic institution providing uh, their tuition fees as part of helping the budget for the university library. And even from the flip side of things, if you kind of look at it over in a corporate librarian aspect, it's the uh, employees providing their knowledge and skills in helping the company continue on and making a profit that would end up being translated into a budget of, of supporting the library in that sense. So it's almost impossible to separate the idea of capitalism with libraries because so much of our operating budget, so much over those services that we provide to um, users are very much rooted on the idea of because we get budget from a, an organization that is higher than us, we kind of have to cater towards what the organization's mandates might be. And they might either be geared towards providing education to people or more specific towards fiscally positive kind of uh, mandate. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think capitalism in libraries 
is. There could be all other several different other elements too to it, but it's also one of those ideas too where it's a problem of because you're kind of following along the mandate of an organization, there is the potential of excluding so many other groups. As we probably all know, manipulation of a higher organization above your small group could be because of like following orders or that kind of thing. Oh, so. sure. Of course. Yeah, Parent yeah. organizations set the mandate. Exactly. Absolutely they do. So. And you're right. So academic libraries are not separate, right? They're, it's not a standalone organization no. to which you go to, to borrow the books. They, they serve the university. And mm -hmm. so it's a great point that you bring up. One interesting fact that I've certainly thought about is we know that business schools bring in a good chunk of tuition dollars to universities. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that more services in terms of your librarian time, mm -hmm. buying databases, resources, collections, the kinds of programming through workshops, however we define that service, does that mean that the majority should go to the business school because they bring in the most tuition dollars, which then powers quad looking nice, buildings running, lights mm -hmm. being on? Or should we treat art students equitably, social science programs, mm -hmm. astrophysics, even though they're small and they actually don't have that many students enrolling? And also the numbers of enrollment are, aren't magic, right? Like someone sets the yeah. admission rates and all of that. So like none of it is accidental. Yeah. De decisions were made. So you're right. Certainly budgets are one of them. You also kind of touched on values, right? Like what is important? Why? Yeah. Why do we collect some things and not others? And this yep. is where ILL comes in. Mm -hmm. There is one other thing I kind of want to mention about um, information and capitalism sure. too, because our discussion is kind of making me recall a specific aspect about information that is mostly rooted over in capitalism, okay. even from a from a historical basis. So if I re remember this correctly, with the invention of the Gutenberg Press, that kind of allowed uh, so many different people to actually be able to access information. Um, the more information the public was able to access, the more educated they became. With the printing press and information, though, that kind of goes back even further, though, because when it, you kind of think about it in terms of economics, the more current information you can get from neighboring countries, from neighboring towns even, the more likely you'll be able to go and um, increase your profits because you'd be more aware of situations that could be happening in the next town over. So information in that sense becomes a very large commodity because of the fact that business owners back then, tradesmen, would be very keen on getting the latest information about their potential trade partners and implementing those kinds of outcomes then to their own practices for sure. So information of itself is very much rooted on the whole idea of capitalism too. So because librarians are the ones dealing with information, trying to sift through all that kind of stuff that are currently happening today, even like the whole bombardment of information overload on the internet. Again, it's also another aspect of capitalism that librarians can't really run away from or hide from. So you also have an interest in natural language processing. <laughs> And Tell me. maybe board games? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is natural language processing? Let's okay, start there. Okay, um, so natural language processing is, without getting into the whole didactics of language and information, the idea of natural language processing is where you're using an AI, so this is one aspect of natural language processing, where you're using uh, an AI to go and actually locate specific resources based on the uh, words that are used within the text. 
and also based over on the words that are supplied. So it's kind of like the way that Google is set up right now, where they, instead of using very precise language, they're using more of like quotidian kind of language where people are just using like things that they would normally say. Is it kind of like colloquial, like things people say every day versus like yeah. how you would enter search terms? So not everyone would know the term entrepreneurship, but they might, you know, talk or about business, right? Yeah. And so, or starting business or versus end- entrepreneurial. Yeah, that or they would end up using the word startup versus entrepreneurial endeavor right. or that kind of stuff. Right. So making things a lot more accessible in that regard. So natural language processing, though, is the idea of using those very simple ways of phrasing specific research topics so that you can then for information very easily. It's a complicated topic, though, to be honest with you. It's something which I'm still not quite sure whether I have a good definition about it. And I'm pretty sure my professor, if she's ever listening to this, that talk that class is probably screaming at me for saying this kind of stuff. But but the professor will applaud the fact that a year after you have taken this class, you are still thinking about it and still talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, why are you interested in it? Okay, so part of the reason why I'm so interested in it is because of the at, it's a very subset of natural language processing, which is called machine learning. And that is very much rooted on the idea of AI. So artificial intelligence is definitely becoming more and more like a prevalent thing, regardless of it being in librarianship. It's just being more obvious and more prevalent over in our society today. And there is this researcher who's working on his PhD. His name's Mike Ridley over from University of Guelph. Uh, and he's doing a lot of research over on artificial intelligence and the application of that to librarianship. That is quite fascinating because if you look at it and if you are are aware of the current trends that are happening right now, there is a possibility there where artificial intelligence will potentially end up replacing a lot of, of jobs, the tasks. For sure, that we do. Yeah. yeah. So it's also untroubling sure. in different regards. Because if we kind of continue on this trend of where librarian where we kind of have this mindset where librarians are just information gatherers, that definition of being a librarian will vastly be outdated in the next few decades uh, when you've applied um, artificial intelligence in that regard. The idea of having this mindset of where artificial intelligence isn't like a tool that we end up using to help patrons, but becomes the actual intermediary patron Right. in that regard is very much an idea I think that we should definitely start jumping on board with for being a libra- uh, in terms of librarianship. Because if we don't, there is a risk where we will eventually become outdated. And if we continue on with the whole traditional approach of providing services as we normally would, that would be basically um, validation of the whole idea. Oh, why do we? Why would I want to support libraries when I could just school everything? Right. So. So why should we be traditional? Well, yeah. I, I find this a really interesting like framework that we 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 tend to bring up a lot when we're talking about technology in libraries, which is like. If we don't do this, we're going to fall behind. So like there's this future new thing, new tech that's happening. Mm-hmm. And the way that we talk about it with ourselves is like, okay, we got to we gotta make sure we get on board with this or we're going to end up being obsolete. We're going to end up being outdated. But I kind of wonder how true that narrative is in libraries. Like we have managed, well, we've managed to survive for a couple thousand years, <laughs> but we are continually making strides and I mean, rebranding ourselves in different ways, but also integrating new tools and integrating new technology. So I'm kind of like, is the fact that Mike Ridley is working on 
AI and researching it now, it's still a new field. It's still not something that's like, you know, ubiquitous in all all of our lives. Like it's not a smartphone yet. Like why do we bring it up in a, in a way of fear as opposed to look at us, we're making strides in this area. We're already thinking about it and people are interested in learning about it, you know? We need to be able to not so much predict, but have the forethought of being able to understand that AI could potentially be the next patron that we have to deal with, that we have to go and be able to go and cater our services to so that the way that AI could interact with libraries could be very beneficial if we're very well aware of it, if we are able to hop onto that mm-hmm. um, early enough so that we're not lost in the dust. Yeah. But it does kind of lend the question to of like, at what point does technology render some kind of well-established institution as a relic of the past, for mm-hmm. sure. And I think in one sense, too, that I don't think libraries will be extinct outright if we aren't careful. It's more so that maybe libraries could potentially end up developing a very similar role to museums mm. nowadays. That's just kind of my thoughts about mm-hmm. that, though. So. Can we talk about video games? Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned you also have an interest in, is it video games or board games or both? I actually have more of an interest in video games, to be perfectly honest with you. But there is a librarian over uh, Wolf Laurie University. Her name's Michelle Goodridge. She does a lot of research over on the application of board games and how important board games are in terms of developing new video games, as well as um, community building over in libraries, for sure. A lot of her work does discuss about the ideas of why board games are so important nowadays, especially because, um, I mean, like prior to the current uh, trends right now in board games, a lot of board games, uh, a lot of um, those kinds of products were more so kind of put by the wayside, wasn't really thought of as providing all that much um, educational value, right? But in terms of the context of like now European style board games, more of the very, not just only narrative, but also um, mathematical based and various other kind of educational kind of board games now, there's so much more that you could potentially build upon that could be used over in education. And it's not just only rooted in education of like primary and secondary schoolers, but you could potentially end up educating people over in the university programs too. There's a lot of value in terms of like literacy that you can end up building upon from using board games in classes for sure. And Michelle's work on that probably would end up being able to describe so much more more eloquently for sure than what I'm trying <laughs> to describe it now. So, but in terms of video games, I'm more of an avid video game part-time wise. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to play a lot of video games on my downtime for sure. There's two interests of mine over in video games specifically. One is the aspect of communicating um, educational value through video games. So there's recent there's something that came out from Ubisoft recently uh, through their Assassin's Creed series. Mm-hmm. So for those of who might not be too familiar with that, so it's a video game where you're kind of role playing as a person who's also role playing as one of their ancestors through like this machine. It's kind of complicated. It, I could go on and on about this, but. One aspect of one of the most recent additions over in that series recently came out with this kind of interactive in-game portal of sorts where you could go and actually learn about ancient Egyptian practices and customs while you're playing the video game itself. Cool. Yeah. Nerd Carla's like, I'm into it. Sign me up. <laughs> it's really interesting because it's that that's kind of bringing the whole aspect of historical education to a 
a different kind of audience that maybe might not originally have a lot of interest in that initially. And I think that's a different way of approaching things that I think video games would be hugely help beneficial in the application, uh, it, in applying it over to an educational kind of aspect, for sure. So in other words, if I'm understanding correctly, you're excited or interested because people can learn, I guess, more informational or historic knowledge mm -hmm. and maybe become more literate culturally, whatever, through fun games, through narratives. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you've already have games that help with educating kids on how to go and do coding. Right. Computer programming, mm -hmm. you can end up building upon that idea where you can have people learning about very, very interesting, more sociological kind of theories on economics, capitalism, that kind of stuff. Empathy. Empathy, yeah. for sure. And also on the intricacies of human morality through video games. Mm -hmm. There's one very specific game that I'm very interested in playing called Detroit Become Human which is all about the idea of AI and as a future role in where we have androids to go and actually help out with mundane tasks. And then what do we do as humans when those AI become sentient enough to actually have human emotions and have those kinds of interactions amongst ourselves? It's basically another form of information literacy, I think, where video games now have become more and more opponent of providing the same level of education, human empathy, and information as literature has now. I feel like there's so much that could potentially be stemmed from the side of information sciences just on studying video games alone. Mm. That's just one side of video gaming, though. No, no, I, absolutely. I, no, I'm really interested in this. Yeah, I, I really love that, that um, like, the analogy that you make to, like, to literature or to books, because that's... I mean, yes, whatever information texts I can pull up. I'm having a flashback to making a Hyper Studio presentation in grade six about, uh, if you remember Hyper Studio, precursor to PowerPoint <laughs> uh, about ancient Egypt with my eyewitness ancient Egypt book that I was flipping through. But so anyway, yeah, informational text. But the lessons that we learn from fiction, from literature, when you're describing this, the Detroit video game, I'm like, yes. I would like to immerse myself in this world, but I'm not really a gamer. And so if I could just watch someone do it, or if I could, <laughs> if I could read the book of it, then to me, it would bring up all of the same things that I would expect or that I would be looking for in a work of fiction about mm -hmm. AI, about yeah. who we are as people, about all of that. So I think it really speaks to kind of this, it's a dumb word to use, but like the sophistication of video games mm -hmm. past a game stage and even talking about board games right like yep. past just kind of a like snakes and ladders whatever it's a game mm -hmm. the fact that it's a game is only a part of it and what that means to be a game is i think something that still like you know they get they're not looked at in the same way as literature mm -hmm. but how interesting would it be if you know a class was learning about ancient egypt and decided that they would play assassin's creed and they would you know gain the information from there or have it listed in a resource guide mm -hmm. for a library about like learn about ancient egypt through this video game. well yeah it's it's also really interesting too because the fact that not all video games have that capacity there are a lot of games that are being produced nowadays too that still have that element of like oh it's just a game it's just like me people yeah. people just shooting each other for kind of stuff like that and, and there's a place for that exactly there is absolutely <laughs> a place for that but it's one of those things too where it's it's gotten to the point where video games have gotten so sophisticated in terms of narrative in terms of bringing in so many of those very 
theoretical kinds of concepts and applying that in that kind of narrative kind of construct that I think there's so much ability to actually study that as another um, information source that's outside the printed media form too. There's so many things that I personally have a very big interest in actually studying a lot more to do with how would you be able to communicate very complex kinds of research and concepts over in a format that's outside the traditional academic paper, for sure. I, I know of some people who've, there is this thing that I heard about. There was a researcher from the States somewhere who's actually been able to publish poetry, but the subject of the poetry are rooted over in academic information. So communicating very complex material in that kind of format or even video games or even in like visual aids, infographics and stuff, I think has a lot of potential as a research topic that I'm very interested in potentially pursuing later on, Mm -hmm. but we'll see. Arguably, that could also support the open access and the open education resource, mm-hmm. I guess, mandate or mission, because we're doing a podcast, many academics and are finding out ways to reach broader audiences through forums like mm-hmm. podcasts and websites and yep. games and other types of media, because the public is receptive and also they have access to them. So could you consider a really cool, beautiful, ethical game as a form of scholarly communication? Yeah, arguably you could, right? Well, yeah, there's so many games right now off the top of my head outside of Detroit Become Human. You can end up citing like Batman Arkham Asylum on the whole idea of the role of prisons and mental institutions for criminal activity and stuff. Another game in particular that's very close to my heart is Bioshock series, which Mm -hmm. discusses things like capitalism in the form of taking it to an extreme. So the reverse side of communism of sorts. And also other video games, too, that kind of discuss the whole aspect of nihilism and tying it to an element of Lovecraftian horror as to how that would also play out, too. So there's so much complex concepts being put into video games now that I think it's a hugely interesting thing. And the reason why I'm so keen on exploring that so much is because of a love of different styles of narrative that's currently being put into those kinds of games, for sure. It's fascinating. I'm thinking back to, like, my film studies 101 class or whatever and I'm like okay well now is there like video game I mean I know a lot of the video game classes in university will focus on learning to design your game or whatever but like the way that you're talking about and describing these games I get immediately excited because it's the same way that someone would describe like a really great book or a really great comic or a really great movie. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Those are the things that I love. Those are the things that make me excited and make me happy to be human and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting, I don't know, an interesting time for video games. And what is the research focusing on? Are we studying them just as like a pure object of narrative, looking at some of the mechanics the same way a film studies class would look at, you know, lighting or uh, cinematography and those kind of technical elements that go into it. I wonder about that for academics and, and for li- librarians, quite frankly, mm-hmm. as this other now unbelievably ubiquitous resource that billions of people are playing mm-hmm. all the time. So where does it live in our kind of pantheon of resources and mm-hmm. and in our hearts? Yeah. 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 Um, it's interesting you should mention the whole film studies aspect of things because nowadays for sure... In terms of mostly that I've noticed single player kind of video games, there is so much focus over towards building good cinematography kind of style of games. There's one particular that just recently got released called God of War. The previous installments of that particular game has been very much 
well known for um, its hack and slash kind of style and more of like blood guts gore kind of. Not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the recent installment, though, that uh, I'm aware of is very much rooted on the whole building narrative, building a universe and character relationships, as well as also maintaining. So the interesting thing about that one is that they have. Uh, the way that the visual camera is set up. You're following the characters, but it's basically in a style that seems like a single track shot. So while you're playing through the entire game, you are seeing everything that is happening to these characters as you're playing through them. And there is no cutscenes. Everything is kind of lined up so that you don't have any loading screens. So it looks like one long movie wow. that you're playing through it. So Children of Men effect to some degree, you know. Yes, uh, yeah. yes. Which is... I don't know what that is. What is that? That's a movie. Like that, that movie. Yeah, yeah. Children saw of that Men. Movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, well, I certainly hated it because <laughs> you I are remember. forced to empathize, right? You are oh, forced, okay. you you can't escape the first person perspective oh. or, or just like being, I guess, like that point of view has implications for how you receive that information. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. The blood and gore, it's intentional. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the previous series, they were much so much over on like hack and slash kind of thing that you don't really get the chance to go and actually empathize with right. those characters as much. You just kind of go through the game as you would like a size scroller, not really yeah. develop. It's not the other. objective of it, right? No, like, it's it's just like you're trying to beat everyone and that's it. Yeah. That's probably an oversimplification of the game itself. But I feel like the last, uh, the most recent installment of that particular series has so much dedicated towards relationship building, so much towards world building too, that you actually really do get the chance to empathize with those characters so much more. And you don't really treat the characters as like this kind of avatar analog for you to be interacting with the world. You actually get to go and learn more about the characters themselves, like an actual storybook mm -hmm. that way too. So I'm just thinking about all the things that I don't know about video games now. And again, comparing them to my film studies class. So like, who are the auteurs? What were the seminal games? How do you analyze this particular game? And Oh, I could probably go on, I on know. And on about this. See, yeah. and that's the thing is I know it's out there. It's just it wasn't part of my experience when I was in university. And so now I'm in a place where I'm like, how am I going to get this information? And how am I going to explore this? I will need to have tools that can help me learn how to actually play the video games in a way that doesn't make me want to just scream because I'm so bad at any gameplay that like... That's such a barrier for me to getting into the actual world. Most video games are very, very good at telling you what the mechanics are. Just Yes, I know. I still manage to be terrible at it. <laughs> okay, well, um, one recommendation for sure, do not start off with anything but FromSoft. Okay. You'll probably be more than guaranteed to go and throw your controller at the TV screen at the very least. All right, very good. Okay, yep. a good tip. Tip for beginners, yeah. nothing from soft. <laughs> but you're right, Carla, that's a good point. And I certainly never thought of game studies when I was studying kind of digital humanities, the idea of like, oh my God, critiquing software, that's wild. Same mm -hmm. way, I think when we were at university, critiquing games seems so illegitimate. That's not a serious activity. And yet now game studies are, they have their own conferences, there's journals, just like the golden age of TV. I think there's so much resources and attention invested in in gaming worlds and narratives that it's a much richer environment but how do people like me and you who are not in university get to understand it and think about them a little bit deeper right than just we don't have to play them but what tools do we have to be educated to learn a little bit about this world mm -hmm. well, i'm kind of wondering now too if we will ever reach a point where Okay, we have reading, writing as literacy. Will gaming become 
you need certain skills in order to access those cultural products, right? Yep. And so will that become something that is kind of maybe not on par because at this point anyway, reading mm-hmm. and writing is still the way that we do day-to-day mundane tasks like banking and whatever. Yep. But will there be an emphasis on gaining those skills so that people can access those products? That's an interesting question, um, mostly because of the fact that looking at it in two ways, one, you're kind of basing the question on the assumption that gaming will be something that's widely available for even people who might not have be able to have access to it right now. True. And then it's kind of on the idea that it could potentially be something that needs to be learned through school. Because a lot of video gaming stuff tends to p- typically be through hobbying. Informal learning informal versus learning, yeah. formal school. Yes. Sure. Yeah. So it could potentially eventually become something uh, just as ubiquitous as being able to read textbooks. Read not just read textbooks, but know where to go and find your grocery and like operating very very mm, mundane things too. Yeah. So, I mean, like the whole aspect of gamifying so many different things too, especially in education, that could potentially be another way that games could potentially be implemented in that regard too. Yeah, totally. The thing with gaming though is because there's so many different branches of gaming, there's so many different kinds of gaming that is, it's almost impossible to go and actually figure out as to whether it will become something so ubiquitous because there's so many different branches of it. Potentially is the short answer. Mm-hmm. I'm more of the mindset that it's probably going to be more one of those things that is just learned because it's part of the culture mm-hmm. of whatever society you're in. So there are so many game development right now over in games that it's a lot more accessible too. The first one that kind of comes to mind is the Nintendo Switch, the Wii mm-hmm. U. Um, the fact that they've came out recently with like Switch Cardboard. I'm not too sure whether either of you. So you have the Nintendo Switch operating system, right? Where it's kind of like this giant tablet where you have the controllers over on the side. The cardboard piece is what it is, is this kit where you can build additional attachments to the Switch tablet itself so that you're actually interacting it with like bits of cardboard. So modulating it through basic materials. Yes, exactly. I almost feel like it's based on the idea of the whole makerspace technology Mm -hmm. and incorporating that as part of gaming as well. Great. So, Well, this is like the Makey Makey is the classic example, right? Exactly, and this is just yeah. Makey Makey in a Nintendo no world. Switch, yeah. Yeah. And you, you just have like additional kinds of materials that you can go and work with for sure. The thing with the Switch too, their specific remote controls are one of those things where it is very, in terms of like public commercialized products, it's very much, I feel like almost kind of very similar to the whole haptic technology that's currently being in development right now because they have so much advancements compared to some of the other things that are currently out there in the market for gaming mm-hmm. right now. So is there anything you wanted to add or summarize in terms of, you know, this residency doing the mm-hmm. various projects, any kind of takeaways that you'd like to share with the listeners? <laughs> Again, we're putting you on the spot with no, all these okay. definitive okay. <laughs> answers, but is there anything you're excited and proud mm-hmm. to share? I'm kind of one of the fortunate people over in being a recent graduate that I also had a lot of co-op experience because of the fact that most of my co-ops were mostly four months. I never really got the chance to actually work more of on a long-term project. So the fact that I was able to go and work over on my interlibrary loan project um, and be able to dive into that aspect of things in terms of what the user experience of that stuff is like and how current emerging technologies like open access button, um, things like Occam's Reader, which is kind of right now currently this platform down in the States where it allows libraries to go and share ebook resources of sorts through interlibrary loans almost. Really Sorry, it's called Occam's? Occam's Reader. 
And it's one of those things where if I wasn't tasked with doing the project, I probably wouldn't have learned mm -hmm. anything about internal library loans for sure. Outside of that, it also kind of gave me better opportunities to actually be able to help students and provide services specifically on entrepreneurship. That's a pretty unique opportunity, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This interesting thing, too, where it's like you don't get the chance to go and really work on that many things on your first job, for sure. So I've been really fortunate. Do you see as a, a recent grad and someone who's new to the kind of professional librarian workforce, do you see or feel that there are that there's a technology track and then there's the rest of librarianship or are you kind of finding that more and more of the path that you're looking at the jobs that you're looking into is it kind of all technology in, embedded in there in some way or is it kind of like you have to choose one direction or the other I'm feeling that a lot of the jobs that I've been kind of gravitating towards have been more rooted with implementing new emerging technology mm. into the classroom or implementing in a way that we can then better serve our user base. Mm -hmm. well, a lot of the jobs I'm currently trying to apply for has a lot to do with some kind of description asking about like being able to go and put in new educational based technology into information literacy instruction mm -hmm. for sure. So I feel like there's, for me personally, I kind of been more grabbing towards positions that have a lot to do with new technologies that are emerging or implementing technologies that are currently existing but haven't quite been applied over in a library context yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm implementing for people to use, right? Exactly, so it's not yeah. like the you know a systems department thing. It's still very much like a how do we help people how do we make this tech work for these people and how can it benefit them? Well, yeah, that and also how do we also provide more information through the tech that we're now mm. trying to go and incorporate mm -hmm. as well. So mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. Great. Well, we wish you luck. Thank yeah. You. Maybe we'll catch up with you in your next opportunity and yes. we'll see if your positions or ideas <laughs> have changed or evolved in any way or if they've um, gotten richer. Yep. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. I hope this was interesting. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for chatting. I learned so much when we have guests <laughs> on the show and everyone has such excellent, excellent interests and such a range of ideas, which is why librarians are kind of the best sometimes, <laughs> even though they're not technically allowed on the show. <laughs> yeah, yes. So this podcast is available on Google Play. And if you have any topics or you want to chat with us about anything, get in touch. Yeah, we have a website called nolibrariansallowed.com. And uh, we do take questions for, you know, future topics and ideas. So we have everything. <laughs> you, can, you can reach us. All right. Thanks. Bye. See you. Bye.